The newspaper columnist has a revered place in American journalism. We readers have been enlightened, amused, and inspired by the best of our columnists. At their best, the great columns rise to the level of literature. Our guest today has noted that pieces which win our hearts get thumbtacked to the bulletin board, taped on our refrigerators, folded up and stuck in wallets, and these days, emailed around the globe. John Avalon with co-editors Jesse Angelo and Errol Lewis have collected some stirring works from these outstanding columnists in their new book, Deadline Artists, America's Greatest Newspaper Columns. Mr. Avalon himself is senior columnist for Newsweek and The Daily Beast, in addition to being a CNN contributor. His previous books include Wingnuts and Independent Nation. Deadline Artists is a terrific collection of, of literature, in my opinion, and I'm delighted to be able to say welcome to Radio Parallax, John Avalon. Well, thank you. It's good to be with you. Um, as a columnist yourself, working at the New York Sun years back, uh, you, you, I guess we're commenting about how you'd like to read a collection of the great works of the past, only to find that no such anthology had been compiled. So what principles were guiding you when you sat down to make your collection? Well, I mean, our, our guiding principle was great writing. Uh, that, that's what we wanted to provide for people. This isn't an academic book. It's not just a book for journalists. This is, these are great writing, great storytellers, just for the average reader on the run. I mean, one of the nice things about the the length of a column, which averages around 800 words, is that even with our short attention spans today, people can, can get a, a pretty amazing experience reading literary journalism uh, that resonates today as well as it did the day it was written. Uh, but as you said, you know, when, when we first got the idea for this book, um, it, it, it was the book we wanted to read. And I always find uh, in writing books that's the best principle to put in place. You should write what you want to read. Um, and I'd previously been a, a speechwriter for Mayor Giuliani in New York. And, you know, all speechwriters invariably end up getting this one book by William Sapphire called Lend Me Your Years. And it's a collection of um, great, the greatest speeches in history uh, by himself, a former speechwriter, and, of course, a, a famous newspaper columnist. And when I started as a columnist at the New York Sun with Errol Lewis, uh, I, I was looking for that book, you know, a book that would give you the sense of the best of the past that you could learn from. Uh, and, and I was amazed that, that no such book existed. And Errol and I would go out to lunch regularly with one of our colleagues, the late, great Jack Newfield, who was a classic New York column himself, great friends with Jimmy Breslin, part of that 60s uh, you know, newspaper culture, New Muhammad Ali, Bobby Kennedy, etc. And, and we'd just pepper him with questions. We'd say, what are your favorite columns? What do you remember? Uh, and one day, uh, he and Jimmy Breslin were talking, and they they both thought that the best column they could remember was a column called The Death of Frankie Jerome by Westbrook Pegler. And it took us months to find it. It hadn't been anthologized since 1924. And that's what really made it crystal clear that there was a need for this book. Because when you read the opening lines, you realize that this is literary journalism, that this is an American art form. And, and for, especially for young columnists, uh, you know, uh, which I still count myself, uh, <laughs> writing online, there's a temptation sometimes to think that writing a column is simply typing out your opinion. And there's really so much more to it. There's an artistry, there's craftsmanship, there's the importance of reporting your column, uh, and, and then making a scene come alive in the mind of a reader. And that's part of the fun of putting this book together, and it's part of why we've seen an extraordinary response to people who just love reading these great columns. Well, that name, Westbrook Pegler, it's probably unfamiliar to most of our listeners, but I think you used three of his columns in your book, so he clearly made the great as one of your greats. Can you tell us just a little bit about him as an example of, of what, it, what goes into it being a columnist? Westbrook Pegler is, is an odd cat. Um, he, his writing, I mean, the best of them, don't, the writing doesn't age. It remains crisp. And uh, he and, and um, 
In the 1920s, I'd say probably in 30s, the, the Giants were H.L. Mencken, Will Rogers, Dorothy Thompson, uh, and then Hayward Brune and Westbrook Pegler riding out of New York. Uh, Hayward Brune was, is a, a beautiful columnist, uh, very underrated, and uh, wrote from generally from a, a liberal perspective, a progressive perspective. Uh, Westbrook Pegler um, was conservative and then got much more conservative as he got older, but he could write just with a, a clarity uh, and a punch um, and a sense of humor um, that was indelible. And as he started, he was always very careful. He always criticized you know, communists and fascists at that time and when some people were duped into thinking he had to take sides, that there was ultimately any difference. Um, and he could write sports columns and political columns and humor columns. Uh, and and, and, and he, inconsistent with that, the greatest columnists show a great deal of range. They just don't stick with one beat. They can, they can write in any of the, the sections that we set out in the book, and we did organize it thematically, war, politics, sports, humor, crime, civil rights. Um, and, and Pegler, as he got older, uh, became more and more conservative uh, until the point he became kind of a crank. Uh, and, and unfortunately, uh, it died in a bit of obscurity. Um, and, and, you know, so far right, at one point he got kicked out of the John Birch Society, which I didn't <laughs> think was possible until I read that. Uh, but, but, you know, you need to have a I, – I think, I think with time, you judge people on their work. And, uh, and, um, and, and, and the best of his work when he's a young man stands up, and I don't think, uh, you know, you, 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 you need to judge it on the quality of their work, not, you know, how they ended their lives. Well, you, you, in the book, you did put various sections in there, and, and there was one piece by Pegler under, under humor, and it's titled Apology, but you might well have put that under politics or war because it's a humorous piece with just a steel shaft running through the middle. Well, exactly, and the great thing about the classic humor columns, and actually it's one of the fascinating things in, in putting together this book, is, is finding out, really realizing that actually humor columns were much more widespread in the early days of the newspaper industry. The newspaper column evolved over time, and the humor column was the most popular early form of column. Uh, you know, we have uh, Ambrose Bierce and Mark Twain in the book uh, as well, who are great examples of, of course, great American humorists. But, but obviously a great humorist today and in the past, you know, sometimes satire is the best way to tell the truth. And, uh, and, and, and sometimes the funniest columns are effective because uh, beneath it all, they're, they're telling the truth. And in the case of the column Apology by Westbrook Pegler, he, he, he attends the, uh, sort of the Olympics under the Nazi rule in the 1930s and, and pr- proceeds to apologize for talking about the militarism evident in the Olympics because the German authorities had gotten upset. And he, of course, apologizes in such an over-the-top <laughs> way that he reaffirms his original perspective. Um, but, but the best humor columns do tell the truth deep down. That's why they endure. That's why they're effective. And I think we could use a heck of a lot more humor in our newspapers today. Well, since we're talking humor, for my money, you've got two epic columns in there in your humor section. Dave Barry's How to Win an Argument and Gene Weingarten's Why Not the Worst. I think these, are, these, these could be up to any, next to anybody's water cooler. Just hilarious. Aren't they great? <laughs> I, you know, I, I mean... You know, Eugene Weingarten's piece is amazing. It's a very long form, and, and he actually, you know, he's a columnist, but he published it uh, as a feature, and you see that sometimes. Actually, Bill Plaschke has a piece in sports called uh, uh, Her Blue Haven, which is, is much longer than the typical sort of under a thousand words length. But the Dave Barry one I, I love. Um, it, is, it is a, uh, and he wrote that, that piece in 1981 for a local West Pennsylvania paper. 
Um, he wasn't the Miami Herald yet. He wasn't famous. It was one of his earliest efforts. But you can see that uh, that that you know it's it's great. It reads beautifully. And there's an example of a column that uh, Barry himself didn't have a clean digital copy of. It, it's important for us, uh, I think, for people to appreciate that because the best of the past newspaper columns. Uh, you know, the Internet sometimes creates a conceit that history began in 1996, mm-hmm. and, and most of these columns aren't available online. The vast majority of them are not available online, even uh, that, that Dave Berry column you talk about. Yeah. There's another one. I, I love the how, how-to format in the humor columns. Mm-hmm. One, another one of my favorites is Mike Royko, the great Chicago columnist, another guy who can write in any genre, has a humor column called How to Cure a Hangover, <laughs> which is also, uh, you know, it, 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 it's both funny and perhaps useful. You, you were choosing from Mark Twain, Will Rogers, Ambrose Bierce. Just for the humor alone, this must have been some really, really tough choices. Well, yeah. I mean, already we've had calls to, to, to put together a volume two. And it's fun because <laughs> we've done exactly what we, even though the book's brand new, we, we've succeeded in starting the kind of conversation we wanted to. People are right. writing to us and emailing saying, thank you for putting this book together. It's great. I've remembered some of these columns. But did you think about this one, or how about that one, or how could you leave out this person? And, you know, we had to cut the book down a lot. Um, sports, I mean, crime, these could all be their own books. They could sure. be their own genres. But the humor one is really a sentimental favorite. I mean, I write a political column primarily, um, but, uh, but, but a great humor column just endures. Well, since you're being thanked, I want to add my own thanks, John. I know back in high school, I, I was told that H.L. Mencken went to Tennessee to cover the Scopes monkey trial back in 1924. And thanks to your book, and it's only taken me now four decades to get around to it, but I finally read what he reported, and man, it's good stuff. Isn't it? I mean, <laughs> you know, it is, it, it, and here's a, that's a great example, you know, about the way that one of the things a great newspaper column offers is enduring wisdom. I mean, what a column does in its best is, is it offers perspective on current events, which sometimes can be the hardest thing to find in the hurly-burly of a news cycle. But, but you know, for those folks, if, if you're concerned about the rise of conservative populism that we see in our politics every once in a while, you read H.L. Mencken, um, who, uh, you know, you, you get a sense of perspective and, and a little bit of courage because you realize we've faced these forces before. And, and, uh, and Mencken does it with this, with this, this clarity uh, uh, sort of this transcendent skepticism. And, of course, that, that column then became the basis uh, for the movie and the play um, Inherit the Wind, which is itself a great column with, um, I think, Gene Kelly playing H.L. Mencken, uh, you know, thinly disguised. Yeah. Uh, but that, that's how much these columnists, I think, have become uh, American icons in their own right. I mean, and, and what's fun also is people don't appreciate or realize that uh, that a lot of famous figures wrote columns in their own right as well. I mean, not just uh, Eleanor Roosevelt, who famously wrote My Day. We have a column written by her on the day of D-Day, uh, her, the first, her perspective from the White House. But Teddy Roosevelt as well, who wrote a column for the Kansas City Star after he was president. Orson Welles, the great director, wrote a column, nationally syndicated column for the, the New York Post, uh, the closing days of World War II, and we have him talking about the discovery of the concentration camps after World War II. The folk singer Woody Guthrie uh, wrote a column. Uh, we have him talking about the Dust Bowl and the Okies and, and, and the way some of these folks were being unfairly characterized and victimized. Um, Hunter S. Thompson, I mean, great novelist, and even you in Sacramento, uh, the great Pete Dexter, who's most known as a novelist now, but when you read his columns, which were uh, they're unbelievably good, and you get these, these folks who are best known as novelists today, like Carl Hyacinth, but, 
but they're, um, they began as columnists, and in some cases, like Hyacinth, they, they continue to write a column. The book is Deadline Artists, America's Greatest Newspaper Columnist. We're speaking with one of its editors, John Avalon. John, you, you talked about American icons a second ago. The, who, who better than the guy in the $100 bill? You've got stuff from Benjamin Franklin's Poor Richard Almanac uh, from 1757, and it, it still holds up. It sure does. I mean, you know, Ben Franklin, you know, he, he wrote under two pen names famously as a publisher. One was Silence, Do Good, and the other was Poor Richard. And essentially set them up as, 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 as predecessors, antecedents to the American newspaper column. Um, in the case of, of Poor Richard, what we did is we, we kind of distilled the aphorisms. And you really see the way that these figures, these columnists and commentators, in the case of Franklin, uh, his aphorisms really form the basis of most American folk wisdom. And, and yeah. it still applies today. Uh, and and that's, the, that's the extraordinary thing, I think, when you read these columns, you realize that the conversations between the generations that occur and how much more we have to learn from these folks. And if you're a young you know, opinion writer writing online, writing a blog, you know, it's like jazz musicians, young jazz musicians always listen to the great of the past to learn, and, and, and you do it for inspiration, you do it for education. And I think... Uh, you know, the great opinion writers, the great columnists of the past, the great reporters deserve that same kind of respect. And you look at their work now and you realize that there's, there's really, uh, that it is a work of art. And, and they, they created art on deadline. And there's so much we can learn and appreciate from them, as well as just to enjoy the unbelievable writing. And, and for the best of this stuff, it gives you a chance to be there uh, as history is written in the present tense. You get to be, have that unique perspective. Um, there's a great Pete Hamill column written right after the assassination of Bobby Kennedy in the Ambassador Hotel in Los Angeles. Jimmy Breslin's work after the assassination of John F. Kennedy uh, is famous. Uh, yeah, I wanted to cite both of those as just just outstanding columns. Oh, aren't they unbelievable? Yes. I mean, what, what Breslin did, and this is, this is a great lesson to us all, you know, everyone's writing about the Kennedy assassination, and Breslin sort of did the definitively important thing of zigging when other people were zagging. He interviewed the attending room physician in Dallas in that column called A Death in Emergency Room 1, which is just, is just an unbelievable piece of work. And then, as everyone was getting ready to cover the funeral of JFK and all the, you know, the, the, the sad pomp and circumstance of that day, uh, Breslin went out and interviewed the gravedigger yeah. in a column called It's an Honor. And, uh, and, and those are uh, two pieces which are justly famous, but they should be even better known uh, because they really, and Breslin, let me tell you, Breslin, who's still, still around, still writing a column for the Daily News, he is one of the greats of all time. And uh, he deserves just endless respect for his, his ability, his clarity, his punch, his wit, and his range. And, and, and in that same section with the piece by, by Pete Hamill and Jimmy Breslin, you had one by Jim Murray, which I think has always kind of a, uh, been a classic, describing what happened when he, when he lost uh, what was his good eye. And it's just a memorable piece. Jim Murray, Jim Murray and, uh, was just one of the great columnists, one of the great sports columnists. And uh, if we do a volume two, I want to put, we have two Murray columns in there. I'd like to put even more in it. You know, but the L.A. Times and the California papers have a great tradition. You know, Steve Lopez writing in L.A. now, I think, carries on that tradition of the reported column. But Murray back in the day and, and Jack Smith, um, you know, you, 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 you just great work. And I think it's important to appreciate some of the best leads in newspaper column history, I think, were written by sports writers. Uh, and Murray was certainly one of the best. But that piece is a sentimental favorite because he writes about, as you said, 
where he loses his good eye. And, uh, and, and it's a sad but uh, really ultimately uplifting column um, uh, about endurance, persistence, and appreciation. Well, John, you do a volume two, and I sure as hell hope that you do. Um, someone that I'm sure is going to play a prominent role is someone that you featured three times as, as a, in the war section, the legendary war columnist uh, Ernie Pyle. I remember as a kid, my parents recalling with great poignancy those columns that he wrote during World War II, and, and these are, these again, truly memorable pieces. Yeah, I'm, I'm so glad you mentioned Ernie Pyle, because um, he was such a legend to the greatest generation. Um, and he was gave, gave an example of how you do it. He embedded himself with the troops. He identified with the troops. I mean, in these three columns we pick, you see him working with the, you know, what he called affectionately the goddamn infantry on the fronts of Tunisia. And then the column, this classic column called The Death of Captain Waskow, which uh, the newspaper, National Society of Newspaper Columnists voted the greatest column of all time in a contest they had based on our book, narrowly beating out, yes, Virginia, there is a Santa Claus. <laughs> And, um, and then the, finally, we, him on D-Day. Uh, and, and, and Ernie Pyle won the Pulitzer, and he lost his life in combat in the Pacific Theater the year after. But he's one of these iconic American figures. And for any journalist, especially a war journalist or a columnist, um, he, he's kind of the patron saint. Um, and uh, he, he put himself out there, and it underscores in the most dramatic way possible, I think, the importance of the reported column. I think there's a danger today that we're writing our columns sort of behind the desks, you know, and, and we're not mm-hmm. getting out enough uh, and really knocking on doors. You know, we, you know Ernie Pyle didn't have search, opt- search engine optimization. He was on the front lines, and he, he wrote it as he saw it, and he wrote literary journalism as a result. Well, John, I want I want to stay in the in the subject of war uh, for a minute because you have two other pieces I think certainly worthy of, of some commentary. Uh, they're kind of opposite pieces, uh, starting with a piece by Dorothy Thompson, 1938, viciously critical of that political deal that was cut in Munich to carve up Czechoslovakia. She thought it was a the whole thing was a disgrace, and it wouldn't stop the impending war from happening. And, and history proved that column to be on the money. Oh yeah, I mean Dorothy Thompson deserves a special mention, so I'm glad you mentioned her. Dorothy Thompson uh, was probably the most influential voice in the 1930s. And, and she, uh, at a time when there weren't many women columnists, although if you go back and you look at the traditional newspaper column, many of the greatest early columnists like Fanny Fern were women. Uh, but, but Dorothy Thompson was one of the, the preeminent voices in the 1930s and 40s in the United States of America, one of the most highly paid columnists, actually the wife for a time of Sinclair Lewis. Um, and, and she uh, had been broadcasting out of Germany and had been one of the primary voices warning about the rise of Hitler. And, uh, and that column, there's so much punch and unsentimentality, and in the lesson, she, she was on the money uh, in terms of the, the stakes uh, and, and, and the times when we, we sort of delude ourselves into thinking that, you know, <laughs> that, that peace at any cost guarantees peace itself. Uh, she, uh, she, she saw through that that charade and it's a good example of how we can learn from the best columns of the past how there are certain transcendent principles and enduring wisdom that gets offered uh, that we can still use and learn from today bookending that piece from, from 1938 from thompson you, you printed art hoppy's 1973 column from the San Francisco chronicle titled to root against your country it, it is remarkably eloquent and uh and uh, probably for most people still a bit shocking 40 40 years later yeah, that, that's a column that, 
you know, it was a good example of how we put together this book and, and, and the kind of conversation we want to begin. And people, if you have your favorite columns out there, email us at deadlineartist.com or you can go to our Facebook page or, you know, just we want to begin a conversation. This, this column came to my attention. I was given a talk in Columbus, Ohio at the University of Ohio. And, and, and one of the faculty came up, we started talking, and, and he said, what are you working on? And I told him on, about the book, and he said, you know, I grew up in San Francisco, and Art Hoppy was one of the legends there, with Herb Cain, of course, who's also in the book. And he remembered, he was of the 60s generation, the power of that one column. And, and so that's how we, we, we hunted it down, and it's really the story of, of Art Hoppy, a guy who'd, who'd been, you know, classic greatest generation, who... At during the height of the Vietnam War, overhears that the U.S. had had taken a a, a, a routing in, 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 in part of the you know, incursion into Laos and reacted unconsciously by saying good. And then he was so horrified by himself and horrified at the toll this war had taken on the American spirit that he might unconsciously find himself rooting against his own troops. And it, it's one of the most eloquent testimonies to the the the. the terrible divisive power of that war and the way that it really hurt the soul of America for a time. Well, the last couple of questions I have for you, John, I want to ask as a senior columnist for Newsweek, uh, if, if someone could grant your wish or bring some of these guys back to work for you and your staff, who would you, uh, who'd you go with? Ha! That's a great question. I mean, um, <laughs> you know, I, 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 think, I think, let's just talk about who the all-time greats are. I mean, I think Breslin's right up there. Murray Kempton is right up there. Uh, Damon, and, and, and Kempton, Kempton was characterized, his, his work are these exquisitely wrought sketches, and there's a deep kindness uh, to his, his uh, explanation of, of some people who were otherwise very unsympathetic, um, really had a literary quality. Uh, Damon Runyon showed great range. Um, you know, it, 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 in humor, there, many of the greats are still around. Uh, and I do want to say that it's not just about people who are past. Um, I mean, there is, even though I think, you know, we're writing obituaries for newspapers every day, opinion writing is proliferating. proliferating. And, and, and the best of folks writing today, you know, we took care to include in the book. David Brooks, um, who I happen to agree with very much politically, but is, is a great one. Tom Friedman, Nick Kristoff, um, Steve Lopez out of L.A., Carl Hyas and, and Leonard Pitts in the Miami Herald. I mean, there there are a lot of great columnists still working today, and I think you know we should you know honor them as well, and that's what we tried to do in the book to show that there's a continuum, that this isn't a closed chapter in American life, but it is a challenge to us, it seems to me, to to raise our own game, to not only appreciate the greats who came before us and the craftsmanship with which they devoted uh, their columns, but to use it to inspire uh, those of us who are writing today and those who will write in the future to try to use that as a benchmark and to, to do even better. Well, I've been picking most of these pieces that we've commented on here, but before we go today, I just want to uh, give you a chance to insert some of your favorite pieces and maybe say why you're so fond of them before we, before we close. I appreciate that. Um, you know, Molly, we, we've spoken of many of them. The, the Breslin columns are, are extraordinary. Molly Ivins, I want to say a word about Molly Ivins, because her range was extraordinary, like many of the greats. I mean, the greatest columnists have a have wide range. Breslin, Kempton, Mike Royko, who I should have mentioned earlier. I would have hired Mike Royko in a, war, in a heartbeat. Now, how, to, how to handle a newsroom with Breslin and Royko would have been a real challenge, but that's a different question. But, but, but Molly Ivins, her voice is so clear. Um, her, it is so funny. She uses humor beautifully. Um, 
and, and she talks, but then she can pivot. And the three columns we have from her, one column in politics where she captures the spirit of, of, of the Clinton campaign in 92, um, one column where she talks about um, uh, Lubbock, Texas, that I love reading out loud, just makes you, makes you laugh from your heart, no matter what part of country you're from. And then a final column called um, uh, um, A Short Story About the Vietnam Memorial Wall. And this column to me is a work, it's a work of art. It reads like a, a Raymond Carver short story. It's the story of, of a young, young couple uh, done in, uh, from the perspective of, of, of the woman looking back on her, her boyfriend in graduate school and the way that the war tore them apart as she goes to, prepares to visit the Vietnam Memorial Wall to seek out his name. And uh, it's an example of, of the transcendent power of the best of these, that they are, it is an American art form that it is literary journalism, and her range uh, is just uh, uh, encapsulates kind of the best. Um, and and when you compare that, and you've got guys like Mike Royko who show a similar range, um, who, uh, him writing on the death of Mayor Daley, his longtime nemesis, <laughs> with just uh, crystal clear prose, or Jimmy Breslin writing right after the death of um, John Lennon. In three hours, he turned around a beautiful column called Are You John Lennon? where he, he told the story of that terrible day through the perspective of the police officer who yeah. picked up Lennon's body and drove him to the hospital. Th- these things are just, um, they are short stories in their own way. They're harrowing and they're beautiful and they're pitch perfect. And uh, uh, I, 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 we should honor them and, and strive to emulate them. Well, I'm glad we close with a mention of, of Molly Ivins. We had a chance to interview on this show uh, some years back, and she was a great lady. You read the best of her work, and you realize she was really one of the best of all time, and she's missed. Our guest has been John Avalon, senior columnist for Newsweek and The Daily Beast. We've been discussing the fine book, which he co-edited, titled Deadline Artists, America's Greatest Newspaper Columns. So, John, I want to just thank you for taking the time to speak with us, and, and, and more than that, uh, taking the time to sit down and create this collection. And I hope, I hope volume twos and three and four will, will follow. I appreciate it. Thank you so much for having me on the show. Thanks, John. Thank you.